Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from Shinwarazi, the home of Made in China, a quarterly on Chinese labour, civil society, and rights. Today we're looking at one of the most vexed relationships in East Asia, that triangular relationship between the world's three largest economies, China, Japan and the United States. One great description of this is that it's the geopolitical version of reservoir dogs with each side aiming at the other. That comes courtesy of Richard McGregor, the former Washington and Beijing bureau chief for the Financial Times, who's written a magisterial history of the post-war relationship. We're also joined by Sao Kit Tok, a political scientist at the University of Melbourne who's done research on how history in China has been used and abused as part of that relationship. Richard, China's been extremely effective in the use of history in the bilateral relationship with Japan. Just one example was the 70th anniversary of World War II. In 2015, China's President Xi Jinping oversaw a massive military parade marking the end of World War II. But the Chinese don't call it World War II. They call it the Chinese People's War of Resistance against Japanese aggression and the world anti-fascist war. How important is that kind of framing to the tenor of the China-Japan relationship? Well, the framing of it is is very important. For example, the the title itself, just ahead of the parade being held, the Japanese obviously were very concerned about it. Nabe's advisors went to the Chinese and said, you know, what's uh, you know, is this going to be directed at the Japanese? And the Chinese said, oh no, 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 no. And uh, they said, well, what's the title of the uh, the day? And of course, it's the you know, the big anti-fascist, anti-Japanese um, uh, uh, parade. So of course, the Japanese didn't attend, but. The thing about China and history, I guess it's extremely effective inside China, but maybe extremely ineffective outside China. And that's a kind of dichotomy because certainly, you know, the Chinese demand that the Japanese be absolutely brutally honest about their own history and what they did during the war. And they did a lot of bad stuff. And, you know, it's not fake news and the like. But um, when it comes to China's own history, it's very tightly controlled uh, and very politically managed. Um, and the two sort of don't fit together. So that the Japanese are kind of, you know, having given lots of apologies now are very cynical about China and history and are very cynical about apologies. And they really just go through the motions uh, to the point where it's a ritual and utterly ineffective in helping the bilateral relationship. Now, you talk about the political management of history. And I think there's a really interesting example of that earlier this year. In January this year, China's Ministry of Education actually issued this decree to change school texts, to change the length of the Second World War. Apparently before the Second World War was eight years long in China. Now it's elongated by six years. So it's 14 years long from 1931 to 1945. So Saoki, what, what was the thinking behind a move like that? I think they're trying to bring the uh, CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, into the narrative. Uh, for a long time, um, the the understanding of war is that World War II in China started in 1937, 7th of July 1937, Lugo Chao incident. The Communist Party was not part of that, that action. 
and and they elongated it to 1931 to bring in the struggles that were supported by the Communist Party in northeastern China. So that that actually helps to uh, bring about certain legitimacy to to the regime. I think the the fundamental difference between Japan and China is that China speaks with one voice. Whereas in Japan, there are the multiplicity of voices in the society and the understanding of history naturally become quite differentiated in the Japanese society. And we have to admit that there's one sector in, in the Japanese society that refused to, 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 to acknowledge certain atrocities that were committed during World War II. Whereas in China, it's more like the framing of the narrative that is, uh, you know, is, is trying to highlight particular atrocities over the others you know, without really changing those facts. I think there's a subtle difference in the way that they approach the understanding of history. Certainly there's true there's a multiplicity voices in Japan. And Japan sadly has a lot of amateur historians who are deniers. Uh, And there's no doubt that's true. And they have a lot of powerful politicians who are also in the denial camp. Abe is not quite in that camp, but Abe is definitely a revisionist on history. There's no doubt about that. But I think what the Chinese do is they conflate Abe's revisionism and say that also means he's a warmonger, which I, I don't think he is. But on your earlier point, I think, about the elongation of the war the in textbooks, in some respects, that's, you know, you could understand why that was done. There's an argument for that. It's not completely wrong. But the point you do make, though, is this is, you know, one of the creation myths of the Communist Party is that they beat the Japanese, whereas we know that they did very little of the fighting against the Japanese and they certainly didn't win the war. And so in the 70th anniversary, of course, they're basically celebrating a victory that they didn't win. You know, as you say, they want to frame it. So that sort of discussion doesn't happen. They give a little bit of credit to the nationalists now, but it's not the party that beat the Japanese. And of course, that's another one of the sensitive issues inside China. Certainly, I agree with you on that. In fact, if you visit the uh, museums in China today, you see how Yan'an, Baita, you know, the uh, the white uh, pagoda in Yan'an is being used as a symbol for the uh, struggle against Japanese aggression. So it's it's just a way that, you know, they're trying to bring the party into, into connect up with that, that victory without really playing the deciding role yep. in winning the war. Yep. And I think that's sometimes reflected in the kind of language that the Communist Party leadership uses, particularly in its public discourse about Japan. I mean, the day before that massive parade, Xi Jinping gave quite an extraordinary speech where he talked about uh, the Japan's use of massacres and death to get Chinese people to yield mm-hmm. and how in the face of the butcher's knives of the invaders, the Chinese people used their flesh and blood to build a new great wall. I mean, both of you, how effective do you think that kind of language has been for the Chinese leadership in serving this political purpose? Well, I think on one level it's effective. I mean, one reason why Chinese propaganda about the Japanese works up to a point is is because it's true. You know, there were real massacres. The Nanjing massacre uh, is real. The Japanese did a lot of bad things. They, you know, Unit 731, vivisection, all that sort of stuff. Uh, so it's quite effective. And I think it's also been effective in schooling a younger generation, you know, turning them into sort of anti uh, an anti-Japanese cohort as well. And I think, you know, 
fair enough, they should commemorate the Nanjing Massacre. I would not argue that they shouldn't. But there's another side to it, I think, is that within the Communist Party itself, um, if we accept the premise that you know the ideology of communism is dead, if, if not the structure of the Communist Party, you know, if we accept that, there's no better mobilising tool within China uh, than to give Japan a good kick. <laughs> and you can see with the debate within China about Japan, there's been various stages where Chinese academics and journalists have tried to have a more balanced uh, approach and the propaganda department has come down on them like a ton of bricks saying, how dare you? And I think that the reason for that is, is that it's too important a tool for the party to give up. Yes, I agree with Richard on that account. I think um, earlier on, uh, it reminds me of the incident, the Bingdian incident, where you know this uh, uh, journal, Bingdian, uh, the editors were sacked because uh, they, were, they were advocating a more revisionist version of uh, Sino-Japanese war. Right, that was... 2006. That was in the early 2000s, yep. yes. Uh, yeah, yep. 2006. I think the parties tries very hard to, to control that narrative. And uh, using those words, uh, you're saying, um, were actually quite, uh, it's actually quite common in, in the textbooks. Um, I've been looking at the uh, Chinese history textbooks and um, it was littered with emotional words such as that. Through the words, the, the way the texts were being presented, you see that there was a very conscious effort to incite the emotions of uh, and, and to socialise uh, Chinese kids into, into thinking the world uh, in the way that the, the party wants them to think. That's the thing about nationalism in China today. It's built on such those kind of building blocks of the of nationalism in China is 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 built on such emotions and radicalized thinking that is is very difficult to control, even for the Chinese Communist Party. You see things like uh, after the Sichuan earthquake, when Japan agreed to send uh, military planes to perform humanitarian services, the population just stood up and said, no, we don't want Japanese planes in China. Simple as that. You know? and, and, and in the end, the Communist Party have to backtrack on that. And that is not very good in terms of uh, the relationship between the two countries. If I can add an anecdote from my fieldwork that illustrates the longevity and the extraordinary reach of China's patriotic education campaign, which has been going on for nearly three decades now, I was visiting a village in a rather remote corner of Anhui, looking to catch up with the headmaster on the weekend to get the real story of his finances away from the township government stooges. The first person I came across was a five-year-old girl who saw me and started howling in terror. Her parents soon showed up and apologised, saying that she'd been taught that all foreigners were bad, but don't worry, next year she'll learn that it's only the Japanese that are bad. So I could come back next year and she'd be fine. <laughs> Sauke, you are arguing that the nationalist genie is something that the party struggles to control, and you often hear a plea that we have to be this way because the public expects us to be like this. But is this nationalism, this anti-Japanese sentiment, now a foreign policy tool that the party has full control over? Well, nationalism is a double-edged sword, actually. When Beijing wants to have a more natural, more cordial relationship with Tokyo, you know, that's when things started to become complicated. Nationalism, especially 
in today's world, where activism is not just on, on public press or the television, but on the internet, you know, Twitter, in China's case, you know, Renren and all the uh, Weibo and all those things. You know, it's, things are changing. The, the landscape is changing. It's no longer that effective in controlling, which is why sometimes the, um, the Chinese political leaders have to be very careful about what they do vis-a-vis Japan. And as much as it's enabling and legitimizing the CCP, the CCP is now being reined in by those narratives in their uh, whatever overtures towards Japan. Yeah, I kind of half agree with that. I'm more of the school that they know what they're doing and they're pretty much in control of it. But having built this edifice, it's very difficult for them to dismantle it, you know, and, and they do leave themselves open for criticism in that respect. But I think... They've shown themselves pretty well able to turn it on and turn it off or jump off the cart when they need to or back on when they, when they, uh, if, if the reverse is true. And, of course, any time when they do reach out to the Japanese, they can portray that as, you know, the beneficent great power sort of, uh, you know, agreeing to let the, the heathens, uh, you know, the dwarf Japanese back on a level footing. Um so I, I think the party's much more in control than uh, people give them credit for. But having said that, uh, they're kind of stuck with it as well. Actually, I agree with you, Richard. Earlier on, I call it nationalism on demand, right. very much like video on demand. Mm. They need it, they turn it on, and they don't need it, they just switch it off. There was one example that I thought was particularly interesting when there were those massive anti-Japanese protests all across China, but particularly, I, I went to the ones in Beijing in um, September 2012. This was, you know, quite coordinated, uh, popular display of anger against Japan. So you could really see the kind of um, how that nationalism was being used with all these protesters singing the Chinese national anthem. And what was particularly interesting was that I um, was talking to this one guy who was just standing beside the protests, and he really looked like he wanted to join in. So I said to him, well, why aren't you, why aren't you joining in? And I thought his answer was very revealing. So what he was saying was it's no good, you know, I can't protest today because I haven't been organised to protest. He actually said it's my day off, I'm, I'm resting. The government controls the demonstrations and makes sure that they're orderly. You can't just go and take part if you feel like it. And, you know, he has said to me, do you understand? They must be orderly. The universities also have to organise because the, there's half a million students and if they all came at them once, you know, it'd be extraordinary. It seemed to me that that cynical reading of China just turning on its protests on and off at will was really, you know, was actually explicit. Mm. I mean, to, to Japan, surely this is a massive problem. What do they have that can counter that? Well, they don't have anything to counter it. I mean, Japan, for all its dark corners, is a pretty democratic place. But the 2012 protests in China were actually massive um, you know, some people estimate them the biggest ever uh, in China since 89 or something like that. But it shows you how far the sort of the party has come because they, they were massive but so well managed. They have an amazing ability into China. I'm always stunned at the capacity of the state to deliver text messages right to the people in the positions 
uh, who are standing in protest to say, okay, you know, time for lunch, protest now. Okay, now you can go home. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and also they had, you know, little, um, I shouldn't say bento boxes, but little box lunches distributed at the same time. But 2012, for all the, the organization behind them, had a big impact in Japan because, you know, there were anti-Japanese protests in 2005, again, big time in 2007, particularly 2010. It wasn't until 2012 that Japanese companies reacted and started pulling back investment in China. Mm. Um, and so I think for all their organization, they kind of made their point in Japan in a big way. Saoki, Japan's historical narrative on the surface should be quite an attractive one to its neighbours. You've got post-war economic success, liberal democracy, catchy pop music, a shared cultural understanding on pretty well everything from bonsai to poetry. But why have they failed to win over the Chinese or even the Korean people despite this excellent basis for soft power? I think we have to take into account how powerful those Chinese or Korean narratives are, the nationalist narratives. In particular, Korean people, I get very interesting responses from them when they talk about the Japanese. They just hate Japanese in their guts and all that, that kind of responses. I have just an anecdote, actually. Uh, an old professor of mine used to uh, is uh, speaks Japanese. He's a Chinese, but he speaks Japanese. And uh, he went to Korea. And um, he was trying to find directions to get to a place. And not knowing Korean, he just asked in Japanese because some of the older people in, in Korea do understand Japanese. And the next thing he know, he was dragged down the streets and, you know, beaten up at, at, at a back alley. You know, it was... Just it, for asking the way. Just for asking the way in Japanese. <laughs> so that was a real-life experience of how, you know, the know how the kind of animosity in the society towards anything that is Japanese. A lot of the vitriol that you get in China and also Korea is about Japanese history textbooks. Do either of you know if this vitriol actually matches the influence of these textbooks inside Japan? I would say no, but it's changing now. In fact, one of the few places which have stood up against conservative Japan is the Japanese Teachers Federation or Union, and they're basically dominated by the communists. Um, and they've always had very sort of self-critical left-wing textbooks. And of course, it's, the Japan's a bit like America in, in as much as it's the local school boards who decide what to buy. So in fact, many uh, textbooks were actually sort of skewed left so that people would buy them. It was a more, uh, you know, the communist unions would buy them as a commercial decision. And so when there was the, we started in the early 80s, when we started to get textbooks which were full of, you know, denial about the war, that was kind of a right-wing backlash or pushback against the communist-dominated teachers' union. And in fact, very few of those nasty right-wing textbooks were ever used. But having said that, I think you go to Japan these days, the textbooks are becoming worse because the Japanese say quite explicitly, well, look at the Koreans, look at the Chinese. They use these textbooks as political tools, so we're going to do the same. That's a kind of uh, nationalism in coming to to blows with one another. Yeah, it's, and it's feeding off itself, and yes. I think that's a really poor trend, actually. But, I mean, for the Communist Party in China, this nationalism is extremely useful. It's both a foreign policy tool. It's also like an escape valve, isn't it, that you can have people on the streets protesting, crying for war against Japan instead of looking at problems inside China. I mean, how have they managed to make this kind of self-perpetuating? I think you, Saki, 
uh, were talking about the way in which the, there's almost like a communal pressure within China to be patriotic. And I think that's both on a sort of individual level and, and you know, within the leadership as well. Just earlier this year, um, China, the Chinese government was trying to mobilize the public to go to, to, to demonstrate against uh, the South Koreans who installed the uh, anti-missile system uh, in South Korea. And um, it has gotten to the extent that um, one of the uh, stories was that um, a, a cruise ship that was docked at Busan, full of Chinese tourists, all the entire ship refused to get off the ship. Doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but that shows how that kind of probably some form of uh, communal pressure was there, peer pressure. Definitely there. sounds like peer pressure, actually. I'm sure a lot of what people would have liked to have gotten off. Uh, yeah. But the, uh, I mean, the Korean thing is interesting, though, because I think that the Chinese government has had a lot of problems sort of, you know, gingering up the same uh, hatred as they have for the Japanese. But, but there's one very good thing working in their favour there, Lotte, the company uh, which on whose land the missile system was uh, installed is, of course, a Japanese-Korean company. It's not just a Korean company. So that makes it a much juicier target. To add on to that is that um, I think recently we're sensing a kind of uh, apathy is creeping in, even amongst Chinese nationals. I, I've spoken to some students. They feel that you know the Korean case was overblown. It was too... You know, they, they didn't too much. Really, too much of it. And it was first the Japanese, then the Korean. And I've now, and even on WeChat, we have uh, interesting um, comic strips that says that, you know, no, it was it was Korea, it was Japan, then it was Korea. It's whoever the, 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 the country wants us to hate, we'll hate it. You know, that kind of... Uh, hatred on demand. Yeah, yeah. Hatred on demand kind of thing. So I think there's slowly apathy is creeping in the society. Sauke, it's really interesting what you have to say about apathy. Another thing the Chinese people are expected to be indignant about on a fairly regular basis is a better known conflict in the South China Sea. How does the narrative on the South China Sea differ from that on the East China Sea, which is the focus of Richard's book? The difference is, I think you're looking at two big powers coming together in East China Sea, whereas the South China Sea is more in uh, it's more a historical narrative that stretches back to the 18th and 19th century. From the Chinese perspective, territorial claims are the same. You know, when it comes to territorial issues, they are the same. But in East China Sea, there's an added layer where competition between Japan and China uh, become more prominent that over kind of like supersede the territorial issue. I think one big difference is the, the East China Sea, uh, Salkut alluded to, is that you can't push Japan around so easily. Basically, Japan is a, is a very significant naval power. Um, and so China makes its point around the Senkaku Diyu Islands, but I don't think it's about to, you know, build, you know, build anything there. And of course, the Americans have said that the those islands are covered under Article Five of the uh, Mutual Defense Treaty. So you know, if you if you grab an island there, you're pulling the U.S. into it as well. South China Sea, I think, is a little bit different. The countries down there are, are much easier to push around. But I think in both cases. The party's been very successful in the narrative in both those cases, particularly the South China Sea. You talk to Chinese people about it and they say, well, of course it's ours. You know, what are you talking about? I mean, there's no doubt about this. I mean, why, why are we arguing about this at all? 
And it's I not think an issue. It's not an issue. Yes, you stupid uh, foreigner. <laughs> um, that portends trouble down the track, I think. I wanted to pick up on something that you said earlier, Richard. You were talking about how Japanese businesses were withdrawing their investment from China after the 2012 protests. Is that, do you think, a line too far for the Chinese? Will they moderate when they see that it goes against their economic interests? Up to a point. You know, I think Japanese investment and foreign investment more broadly is much less important in China these days than, say, it was 10, 20 years ago. Uh, I mean, what the Japanese have done is basically just rebalance slightly to the rest of Asia. But they can't do that for too long. I mean, assuming the Chinese economy continues to grow, and I guess it will uh, for a little while yet, you can't get around China. You can't be a big global company and sort of say, oh, we're not going to go into China because it'll be the biggest market in the world. So definitely amongst Japanese businesses, there was hedging after 2012 in favour of uh, the rest of Asia as a production base. But at the end of the day, um, you know, some of I think the greatest pressure on the Japanese government to improve relations uh, with China comes from the Japanese business community. Toyota, uh, Nissan, Honda all have massive businesses uh, in China. You know, I think even Mitsubishi, for example, has a big business in China and they're one of the few Japanese companies which did an apology on its own and paid some money to um, uh, groups of workers or people disenfranchised back during the war. So the Japanese business community has an interesting role to play in all of this. One thing that comes through in your book, Richard, is how strained at times the US-Japan alliance is. We have some audio here of Obama and Abe meeting in Hiroshima to mark the end of World War II. Over the decades, our alliance has made both of our nations more successful. It has helped underwrite an international order that has prevented another world war and that has lifted more than a billion people out of extreme poverty. It is here that we remember that even when hatred burns hottest, even when the tug of tribalism is at its most primal, we must resist the urge to turn inward. But your book underlines how these allies chafed against each other, particularly how the US felt extremely unsympathetic to Japanese leaders. For example, Brent Scowcroft, who served no fewer than four Republican administrations through two Iraq wars, nominated Japan as, quote, probably the most difficult country that we had to deal with. Richard, what was Japan doing wrong? Well, I think this is a really underestimated part of the story, actually. US and Japan have a, you know, a 70-year uh, long alliance, but it's been a very difficult alliance a lot of, a lot of the time. Uh, a lot of the Americans have not liked dealing with the Japanese, the most notorious, of course, being Henry Kissinger, who really disliked the Japanese a lot and sort of genu- genuflected towards uh, Beijing. Uh, the Japanese are very resentful against the US um, on many levels, even though uh, they are in an alliance and actually more tightly so um, than ever before. One of my Chinese friends gave me uh, a great quote about this, I think, um, and it's a bit harsh for Japanese. And he said, the Americans, um, they like the Chinese, but they don't like China. They like Japan, but they don't like the Japanese. And I think that sums it up. You know, Obama and Abe had a very bad relationship at the start. The Americans, particularly Democratic administrations, were really furious at Abe for still talking about the war and about the comfort women and issues like that and making it an issue because it's so damaging for US security interests in Asia because it riles up the Koreans, it riles up the Chinese. It's a free kick 
uh, for critics of Japan and critics of America. And the US spent a lot of time trying to persuade Abe to shut up about the war, uh, give an apology and move on. Your book presents a very even-handed picture of Japan-China relations, which I expect means it's going to be hated in both countries. In much of the book, the US appears as an exasperated bystander to the bilateral relationship. But to be a bit provocative, doesn't the US have a vested interest in keeping this rivalry going? Yes, I'm glad you said I was even-handed, and I guess you know, no good deed goes unpunished. Um, <laughs> uh, we'll see about that. But yes, it's certainly true that you know, there's an underlying theme in the book as well is that the one thing that the US really doesn't want is for Japan and China to get together. Uh, and in that respect, I think it's a, you know, it's a great foreign policy failure on the behalf of China not to pull Japan away from the US. The US are paranoid at the end of the day about Japan and China getting on. They want stability between those two countries, but I don't think they really want them to be good friends. Richard, do you think I can just provoke you a little bit more on that? Because um, I'm a very uh, even-tempered person. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> That's good to know. Because I, when I look at South China Sea, do you do you think um, the United States was provoking on South China Sea or do you think the Chinese was trying to provoke? For the last five years in or the, so? Not or? just the last five years, maybe in the last year or so. Because what you see is um, the, they are challenging uh, China on the territorial water issue, their freedom of navigation issue. The, the, well, while all the, uh, the ASEAN states were trying to negotiate with China on a settlement, you know, uh, United States send the Navy in and, and try to, to get Japan to participate, to get uh, Australia to participate. Is that a form of provocation? or is Oh, it... in a sense, it's provocation. But of course, ASEAN countries both want to be able to negotiate with China and they would like the US to be there in the background because that gives them more leverage. So, you know, it's a very delicate balance, actually, because the US doesn't want to appear too bellicose or too provocative because, you know, people in ASEAN countries don't want that. But by the same token, they don't want the US to disappear uh, and be absent because that just simply seeds uh, the ground to China. I mean, I think it's very, you know, China has a very specific strategy. They want to make sure, you know, emphasize to Asian countries, you know, China is a geopolitical reality in Asia. America, it's a geopolitical choice. And we're going to make the costs of that choice go up and up. And that's the sort of game we're getting into now. Foreign Minister Wang Yi the other day talking about outsiders. Uh, yeah, in Asia. And of course, the America is the predominant Asia-Pacific power, but you know they think they're outsiders. In a way, they're right. It's fascinating how the, 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 the discourse changed. You know, in, in the 1990s, 2000s, you're actually seeing Chinese leaders welcoming the presence of United States and the region. And now it seems like things are changing. Yeah, I think the Chinese, you know, have gone through many stages of grief, if you like, about uh, about the US in Asia. In the 50s, they railed against them. After 72, they could see the value of the US, uh, you know, because the US has really kept the peace uh, in Asia. And now China is ready to say, well, we can do that. Thank you very much. We don't need you, America, anymore. Um, you know, we've got a big navy as well. But I don't think China wants the US to leave quickly. The, you know, China would kind of like the US to go into sort of bourgeois decline in Asia. 
and slowly waste away. You know, if they left quickly, that would be that would be too destabilizing. So slowly cede the ground to China, and then China can take over. Peaceful transition. A peaceful hand, peaceful handing of the baton. Right. But I mean, the wild card in all of this is the advent of Donald Trump, isn't it? Who's seems to just be completely upending a post-war order. I think we have some audio of an interview that Donald Trump gave to David Rennie of The Economist in 2015. And in it, he expresses his frustration about the U.S.'s close relationship with Japan. If we step back, they will protect themselves themselves very well. Remember when China, you know, Japan used to beat China routinely Mm -hmm. in wars. You know that, right? Japan used to beat China. I mean, they routinely beat China. Uh, why are we defending? You know, the the pact we have with Japan is interesting because mm-hmm. if somebody attacks us, Japan does not have to help. Mm-hmm. If somebody attacks Japan, we have to help Japan. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of deals we make. So how has the Trump era changed the geopolitical calculation in East Asia? You know, I'm so glad you dug that uh, quote out, actually. This is before people even thought he would become the candidate, let alone president. And he's sort of saying, yeah, Japan always beats China in wars. What's the big deal? Uh, quite funny on one level. But of course, what he went on to say then, uh, talking about the imbalances in the US-Japan alliance, in other words, he said this more colourfully elsewhere, that you know, if Japan gets attacked, America has to start World War Three. But if America gets attacked, uh, he said another time, well, the Japanese just sit at home and watch it on their Sony TVs. Um, Leaving aside that I don't think Sony actually makes TVs anymore, uh, he was right if he was talking about 10 years or so ago. um, And he had a point. You know, Japan was a bit of a freeloader. You know, Japan and a lot of countries in East Asia are a bit like the sort of 35-year-old who's still living in their parents' basement and won't move out uh, and take responsibility for themselves. Uh, but these days under Abe, having sort of had a reinterpretation of the constitution pushed through the Japanese parliament, Trump's no longer right on that. In fact, it's a much more equal uh, military alliance these days and the Japanese can fight alongside the US in Asia. Trump, I think, was really onto something when you think about it. I mean, most Americans think, you know, why are we there 70 years later? And uh, nobody really makes the case for it these days. But Richard, I just want to get back to you on that issue. Is that isn't Japan a freeloader because US wants it to freeload? The, the the Japanese constitution was written in a way that it doesn't allow it to get involved in any any conflict around Japan. Yes, they wanted it to be a freeloader, but you know, the most many of the American hawks regretted writing that constitution even a few years later. Richard Nixon in the 50s admitted it was a mistake. Yes, the US did want to run Japanese foreign policy, but I think now they want Japan to step up. But, you know, when Joe Biden in the last election campaign, for example, was trying to debate, go back against Trump about, you know, Japan (laughs) going nuclear and the like, Biden said, he said, um, does Trump not understand that we wrote Japan's constitution to say they could not be a nuclear power? In other words, you know, yeah, we fixed that. It's fascinating that when you talk about Japan freeloading, one thing that Japan was able to do was to avoid getting dragged into conflicts such as the Korean and Vietnam wars, which were immensely costly to other countries, such as South Korea, who sent 300,000 troops to fight in Vietnam. 
Your book argues that a lot of this goes back to Japanese institutions that were set up way back in the 1950s, such as the Veterans Association, the Teachers Union, and even the Japanese government bureaucracy as a whole. They've exerted profound influence on Japan-China relations. Which of these institutions do you think is likely to be decisive in the future? Japan for a long time had a very pro-China element in the foreign ministry uh, in reverse, that was also a little bit true. Within the Chinese foreign ministry, there were Japan experts. And I think in both countries, those people have been crushed these days. They've been sidelined. I think the area that's interesting, and it is a bit nerdy, is the, the San Francisco Treaty, which basically you know set the template for East Asia in 1952, as well as returning sovereignty to Japan. China doesn't recognize that. China has its own template for the region, which goes back to the Cairo and Potsdam declarations, which basically means that Japan can't be any kind of power at all, is sort of disarmed for life. You know, they really believe that. You can see Xi Jinping actually says that. You know, Japan's role in, in, in the region is do nothing, just sit there. I think over time, you know, China, as well it might, wants to rewrite the sort of post-war settlement on terms which are much more favourable to it. And I think that's the game we're sort of moving into now. We have seen Japan, though, bolstering its ties with India, with Vietnam, with Australia, um, perhaps to counter China. And in turn, we're seeing China trying to exert its influence through this whole web of multilateral institutions like the Asian Infrastructure Bank, like these plans for the One Belt, One Road project. I mean, are we seeing China and Japan sort of competing to fill the vacuum left by the US? Oh, totally, I think. Um, you know, the the US system post-war is hubs and spokes. They have, you know, in, in separate relationships with all these countries in Asia. In the last five years or so, we're getting a much more network approach. It's Japan, India, Japan, Australia, Australia, India, you know, Australia, Singapore, all sort of trying to find ways to counteract uh, China without having a full-scale confrontation. Um, and the Japan-India, I think, is probably the most important of those sort of new nexuses. Um, and at the same time, China. China's got its both military statecraft. It's also, we see from, um, you know, uh, the Asia Investment Bank and the One Belt, One Road, a massive economic statecraft as well. Um, and yeah, and over time, you know, you know, China is a much bigger economy than Japan's. We'll have a much bigger military. It's a very disciplined system. Japan, by contrast, is much less disciplined. Japan might be a sort of a new leader in Asia, but it can't do it on its own, which is why it's trying to forge all those other types of relationships. As for prospects going forward, I mean, China has spent decades building up Japan as an enemy for domestic consumption. Could there ever be a rapprochement? Or do you think that the political cost of that inside China would, is just too great? They, can't, they could no longer change the narrative that they have themselves written so successfully. Sino-Japanese relations is a sand trap, to use a golf term, is a sand trap that no... Uh, Chinese leaders wants to get themselves involved in. I mean, look at Hu Yaobang, look at uh, earlier on in the 1980s where he was very friendly towards the, the Japanese and, and, and that came back to haunt him in his political career. And, and really think about that is like he, he, he was a leader in the 1980s and that was the time when China is supposed to enjoy very, very cordial relationship with Japan. And 
it put Hu Yaobang in today's world, I think he will be crucified if he were to do similar overtures to, to, towards Japan. So I have my serious doubt. I think Asia will be better with China and Japan working together. But as prospects, I think I'm, I'm very pessimistic about it. I did love that anecdote in your book about Hu Yaobang's false teeth falling out in the middle of the Sino-Japanese <laughs> negotiations. I just can't even think about him anymore without thinking about those false teeth falling out. But Yeah, well, he, he was ex- you know, excitedly getting to his feet and talking excitedly about, you know, how the two countries should get on. And then, yes, his false teeth, his dentures would fall out. <laughs> a Japanese diplomat told me that. But I think Saoki's point is good, actually. It's, it's become such a touchy issue internally in China that nobody can take the lead on it except in in current terms, Xi Jinping. And if he doesn't move and you stick your neck, neck out on Japan, you could be in big trouble. But let me give you an example. The current foreign, foreign minister, Wang Yi, he's the Japan expert, right? He's the reigning Japan expert. He never speaks Japanese in public or in front of the cameras because it could be played back um, uh, to his detriment. And if you look at some of the stuff that's published inside China, um, and some of this is in my book, it absolutely slanders people like Wang Yi incorrectly. I'm no fan of his, but you know, on a false basis for bowing down and kowtowing to Japan and uh, you know doing their bidding merely because he's a Japan expert. And it's quite vicious, the anti-Japan stuff in, in internal Chinese politics. And... Uh, it's very difficult to take the lead on that issue. In your book, you also mention a speech by Shinzo Abe, the Japanese prime minister in 2014, when he describes that bilateral relationship as Germany and the UK on the eve of World War One. I. I mean, are we really there? Could there be a conflict? No, I don't think so. Um, if I did think that, I would have called my book The Coming War Between China and Japan and, <laughs> and might have sold more copies. But but that was a, I think that was a pretty remarkable thing. He said, he said that at, at Davos, I think, um, and I'm not sure whether he regretted it. But, I mean, it's, it's analogous in one respect is that two countries, their economies intertwined, can still go to war. Uh, I think uh, they're both, you know, practical, pragmatic nations. But having said that, in 2012, when they had their last confrontation over the Senkaku Diayu Islands, many people think that China really did contemplate military action at that time uh, and considered it. Um, and then having considered it, rejected it for good reason, because, you know, if, if Japan and China did have a military conflict um, and let's say Japan lost, well, at Japan, the government would fall, people would feel terrible. But if China lost, that's regime change. So the Chinese can't afford to have any conflict with Japan unless they have a decisive victory. And we're some way off from, from that at the moment. And claiming five rocks in the middle of the ocean isn't really going to be the most thrilling victory when it comes in the end. No, I think they want to wear Japan down over time, um, both around those islands, but around, you know, you know, getting over Japan as the sort of wall, you know, sealing them off from the Pacific, the first island chain. We've seen recently, you know, Chinese bombers, for example, flying through the uh, Miyako Straits near Japan. We see their destroyers going through there. We see... Uh, Chinese destroyers, not just around the uh, disputed islands, but also down south near Kyushu and the like. So the, the Chinese are just, you know, constantly harassing Japan and softening them up to the point where they think that in 10 years they can force them to negotiate. 
on the islands and other issues. So they're, they're just trying to wear them down. I mean, China does not want a confrontation. It's not in its interest, either with Japan or over Taiwan. You know, a war is lose-lose, but over time, they can wear them down. I actually agree on Richard that, you know, it's like war is lose-lose, but I think they are not trying even to resolve Senkaku. The probably, you know, it's actually to, to Beijing, there is benefit for keeping Japan there as an alternative other, which, you know, the, the boogeyman for which uh, the narratives can target rather than rather than resolving. I mean, likewise for Taiwan, why, why, why resolve Taiwan issue, you know, when, when it's good that, you know, um, anytime I can, I can just mobilize people to talk about it whenever I want to. So that whole nationalism on demand thing come back again, you know. Um, I, I think Japan is playing a similar role in Chinese politics today. And whenever there is a need, they can always bring Japan into the, into the discussion. And it's to the Communist Party's benefit to keep it there. I guess we just wonder what gift does the Communist Party want to give itself in 2021 on the 100th anniversary of the founding of the party? Um, and of course, what gift do they want to give themselves at some way off in 2049? I think you're right, but at some stage, they might, they might want to sort of give themselves a little bit of a face. Many thanks to our guests, Richard McGregor and Salkeet Tok, and to my co-host, Louisa Lim. I'm Grant Smith, and you've been listening to The Little Red Podcast bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. It really makes a difference. You'll also find show notes on Facebook to learn more about Richard and Salkeet's work. This episode was recorded in Horwood Studios at the University of Melbourne by Gavin Neighbour, with generous support from Xinhua Razi. Head to their website to find mismatched shards of China, including essays, original artwork, and, of course, our podcast. Our theme music is by Susie Wilkins, and our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danter. Bye for now.